Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have Nicole Sullivan, commonly known as Nikki Sullivan. Nikki is a Team Autos Jiu-Jitsu black belt under Andre Galvao. She's well known for her unorthodox grappling style, heavily founded on Sullivan's trademark Panda Guard, which is an inverted type of guard. Nikki became known to mainstream fans after her performances at the ADCC U.S. West Coast Trials, EBI, as well as the IBJJF World Pan and Masters World Championship. Nikki recently won her Art of Scrap and Twisted Church Super Fights. She's a very impressive competitor and individual. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Please leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show, guests you'd like to see, and consider becoming a patron at anchor.fm forward slash Forever White Belt. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at Forever White Belt. And check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. That's T-E-E spring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at Marin's premier jiu-jitsu academy, North Bay Jiu-Jitsu. Just north of San Francisco, there are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Nikki Sullivan. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Hi, thanks for having me. Right on. So Nikki, you are a black belt under the legendary Andre Galval, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, I am. Under uh, the amazing Academy Autos. Yep. This is Autos HQ, right? Yeah, in San Diego. And congratulations, you're coming off of victory as of this recording. Yes, yes. That was Art of Scrap, right? Yeah, Art of Scrap is a show that some friends of mine actually uh, started putting on like two years ago in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Really professional, really well done, amazing videos and pictures. And it's an MMA show, but they had a BJJ super fight also on the card that they had me do. So I was really honored to get to do that. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was wild because I went to Art of Scrap and I was looking at everything and there's all this MMA stuff. And then suddenly there's mm-hmm. a, there's this amazing grappling match there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was neat. They want to, I think they want to do that a little bit more and they want to grow. Obviously, MMA is a little bit bigger, has a little more of an audience in general, um, especially in Indiana. And so they're trying to mm-hmm. put jiu-jitsu out there a little bit more. And this is a neat way for them to do that. So it's in the cage, in between fights, but you know, way for people to see a little bit more what jiu-jitsu is about. I think that's cool. How interesting. So now correct me if if I'm wrong. You won the match by what looked to be like a perhaps panda guard into what some people are saying, like a dead orchard. Can you clarify what happened? Yeah, yeah. I was doing a little bit of panda guard, a little bit of inverting and attacking the legs a little bit. And then she hunkered down really heavy, which exposes the arms. So I do a lot of attacking. I'll chain upper body and lower body attacks, either attack the arms and the head first and then go to the legs or attack the legs first and then go to the upper body. Um, because defending one usually opens up the other. But yeah, so I ended up with a dead orchard, which is basically I have a triangle locked, but both arms are inside and it's a very tight armbar finish, which I've been playing with a lot lately and I really like it. I was wondering, because I'd never, I've watched a ton of your matches. Yeah. I've never, I've never seen you pull one of those. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever hit one in, I I have actually, but it's been a long time. It's something I've been working on from different positions and Mm. Sometimes a submission just presents itself and you go for it. I had a different plan, but I feel like I have a game where I flow really well. So sometimes you just take what you get and that's what happened. So you do game plan typically for comps? I think I have an idea of like, I kind of had a plan to attack the legs, but I also, I think when I train, I just try to like, especially for a sub only match when I'm training, I'm just trying to constantly attack 
whatever it is, whatever opens up. So I'll have certain things that I'm working on, but at the end of the day, I'm going to just try to finish however I can. So in the super fight, that would make sense. I know IBJJF thing, you're obviously not going to game plan for everything, right? Mm -hmm, For sure. Yeah. It's good to go in with a plan, like an idea, something you're really confident with is what I always tell, especially beginner competitors. You want to have something that you're training. That's your A game that like you feel we slap hands and this is what I'm going to go for. And then be able to improvise a little bit if everything doesn't go according to plan, but it really helps. You can see when you watch like really high level competitors, you can tell they have a plan. Like when you watch ADCC, Mm -hmm. everybody had a plan. They even knew beforehand who they're fighting the first round. So they had a plan specifically even for that person. And I think that helps a lot. You invert quite a bit. You attack, yeah. as you said, uh, you're isolating perhaps a leg. But what I'm seeing is you uh, just attack, 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 attack a lot. Is Thank that- you. I love that. Um, I'm glad it looks that way. That's what I try to be. I want to be somebody who's constantly attacking and looking for the finish. I think sometimes I even could be more patient than I am because I really just want to get something to happen. And sometimes, especially against a really high level opponent, you have to be a little bit patient. But yeah, my style would be characterized panda, very flexible. Yeah, kind of sneaky. Sometimes I try to stay really tight, try to wind around people like like a mm-hmm. snake, like a vine, and just I'm not super strong. So I try to go with what I have, which is, you know, being sneaky, being flexible, maybe being quick, trying to kind of take people off guard. You seem to take on anyone. So I've seen you in absolute, <laughs> so in all kinds of size people, which is can be really scary looking sometimes, you know, watching you, uh, you fight. Yeah. And you don't uh, seem to hesitate whatsoever. Are you like game planning differently or thinking about the game differently in the absolutes? It depends. I mean, I think I try to just play my game no matter what and have a game mm-hmm. that works for everybody. I will say, especially I think about it more when I'm I'm traveling and I'm teaching at gyms. Um, and I've started doing yeah. this thing recently where I do more of a residency. So you can teach a seminar and just be there for a day. But I was recently at a gym for a month and taught there for a month. And a lot of gyms, especially places where jujitsu isn't as big, you don't have as many women. So I'm mostly training with men. A lot of them are much bigger. So I I definitely, even before I traveled to, to teach at a gym, I'm strategizing like I even thought about it as an opportunity to really work on distance control, really work on mm-hmm. like not letting people get on top of me. Cause maybe against somebody my size, I can get away with getting smashed a little bit and mm-hmm. I can deal with it and I work well under pressure, but against somebody much larger or much stronger, it's going to be a bad day. Mm-hmm. So um, I think about that a lot in the absolutes too. I think about it's okay if they get here, but if they start getting into my half guard, like I have to start creating space right away. This is the place where I'm safe. I'm no longer safe here. And I have to really be diligent about keeping my legs in between us, being able to, I tell people the person who's winning the fight is the person who's controlling the distance. So mm-hmm. even if you're in maybe a, a guard or a good position, if you can't control the distance, you can't control like pushing them away or pulling them towards you, then maybe you're not in a great position. So that's something mm-hmm. I try to think about a lot. Speaking of like the stacking and people trying to pressure you, even when they are in your weight class, let's say you Mm -hmm. do your inversion almost acts as a a frame. Sometimes is what I know is you're almost standing up on your toes. It's pretty incredible. The strength of your, uh, it's it's almost like a tripod in a way. I haven't seen many people have that, that type of strong inversion in that way to use it almost as a frame, as a defense. So you can catch an angle or whatever and Mm -hmm. regard or reattack. How have you developed that? It's wild because you're almost standing on your toes in a way, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I started I started inverting pretty early, maybe at Blue Belt, just as a mm. way. So I was one of the only girls. So I was training with a lot of guys, a lot of newer guys who didn't have a lot of technique would just try to like throw my legs or smash through. And so inverting became a way that I could trip people up 
stop them. They didn't know how to deal with it. So for a while, it was just a way to retain guard. And later I started learning how to attack and attack the legs. But um, yeah, I talk about when I teach like panda guard and teach inverting and attacking the legs, I talk about like, like you almost using your butt, like putting your butt kind of in their chest, in their face, Mm -hmm. and then using your spine as a frame. So as long as you can keep your spine straight, like you can be hugging on somebody's leg, but your your head is out, your spine is straight. And I think that's super important because if they can start stacking you and curling you up, then you're no longer strong. But as long as you can keep your spine straight, then your spine is a really huge frame in between you. It's hard for them to take your back. It's hard for them to hug your head, to smash and do all the things they want to do. So for me, yeah, it just kind of became a position that I kept working in becoming stronger and more confident in. And as I dealt with all the problems people would give me, like finding ways to smash me, I was just able to to learn where I need to keep my head. I think the most important thing is just keeping your head away from people. They can hug your mm-hmm. head. I had a coach, Joe Bays, who used to say, if they can hug your head, it's death. You have to think about it as mm-hmm. death. They hug your head, it's death. Because, <laughs> you know, if against weaker opponents, I could get away with it. I could get my head hugged and maybe squirrel out. But against somebody really good, they're just, once they get a hold of it, you know, somebody who has a good head arm chokes or just good smash, like it's over. So that was really helpful for me to think about early on in training. And I think about that a lot now mm-hmm. when I'm training. You got to keep your head safe. Let's talk about your background a little bit here. Then you trained jujitsu under Josh Hanger at Indiana U as well. He was a brown belt at the time and he started just teaching the club there at IU. And so I started, I think I was, it was right before I got my blue belt. So I was a white belt and uh, yeah, I just started training with him some too at that time, which was cool. Oh. Then you get, now the timeline might be all over the place. I think you mentioned purple belt there, but um, then you were promoted to purple belt by uh, Dax Rosano. Mm-hmm. That was a gym in Bloomington, Indiana, where IU is. And um, so the IU club, the jiu-jitsu club, met three days a week. And as you know, like once you get obsessed with jiu-jitsu, that's just not enough. So mm-hmm. uh, I looked for a gym in town and that's where I started training also. And so that was who I was getting promoted under um, while mm-hmm. I was still in Bloomington. Is it after that, then you moved to Kentucky and you train at Nice Guy Submission Fighting? Yeah, it was after I got my purple belt. I kind of was traveling around a little bit and then I ended up moving and I trained with them for maybe two years, year and a half. And then and then I made the move to California. So you, you talked to Josh about Atos. Yeah, there. he actually met Andre in Indiana because this guy named oh, Tim wow. Sled who we also trained with. He's kind of around the club sometimes and he was a a lawyer, but he uh, had a gym also. And he brought Andre in to teach seminars and got affiliated with Atos. So that was the first time I met Andre also was in Indiana. And then Josh ended up moving to California to train with Atos. And then a couple of years later, I was kind of talking to him and I remember having a conversation where he was just like, what are you afraid of? I was kind of like, well, I don't know, like maybe running out of money or like, you know. It's a big leap. Yeah. Yeah. It was scary. That was a big thing that scared me. And just thinking I had this idea in my mind, I guess, that like, is this a realistic life choice to make? Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, should I like just get a, have a nine to five job and is that Mm -hmm. the smart thing to do? So I learned a lot over the past several years about like what you can actually do and what society kind of tells you to do. And there are a lot of, a lot of options. If you're willing to just work hard and be consistent, man, you can do just about anything, I think. But yeah, Josh had kind of a fighter house. We had, I think when I moved five people packed into a little two bedroom apartment and we were all made the rent really cheap, which is great. So it's expensive in California, but mm-hmm. very close to the gym, like five minutes away. And that was the first couple of years there. And, and then it just went from there, but it was really exciting. So did you show up there as a brown belt? Yeah, I had just gotten my brown belt. 
So I was training with the nice guys. I was a purple belt and I had just done the ADCC trials in 2017 and I got second, which was super exciting. The purple belt, I got second and I lost to Elizabeth Clay and she was like a blue 16 year old blue belt at the time. It was crazy. After that, the nice guys, they really wanted to promote me before I left. They did that under Sean Hammonds. He's a black belt wow. out of mm-hmm. And then, so I was a fresh brown belt going to Atos, which was a little scary. Um, mm. It was great. I, I ended up doing really well there. Improving your mobility and recovery will only benefit your BJJ. And as such, we highly recommend you try Yoga for BJJ at yogaforbjj.net. Use our code FWB, all uppercase FWB, to get 20% off your subscription, yogaforbjj.net. So can you give us a virtual first day at Autos? Well, number one, can the newbie go to Autos and learn? Or is it the myth that you, or is that truth, that you really need to be like a comp class kind of person? Oh, anybody can go. And there are, I think that's a really common misconception. That if you want to go to a big gym like Autos, like you have to be at a certain level or you have to, I don't know, anybody can go. Anybody can show up. I mean, you're going to have to pay probably, you know, but anybody can show up and train. And we have a lot of people who train there who are just hobbyists. They may maybe don't compete. They have day jobs. They have families. A lot of, you know, kids who train and their parents start training. Or I was teaching the women's classes for a long time and a lot of you know, new women who would come in to try that. And I worked with a lot of the new women who would come in. And then we have a lot of people who come there already as seasoned competitors too, and they just want to get pushed to be even better. So there's a, a big mix. So if you want to be a competitor, and that was my goal, that's a great place to be. But it's definitely somewhere anyone, you're going to get good no matter what your goals are in jujitsu, you're going to be training with really tough people. So I think even the the people who their goal isn't to be a world champion, they still get really good, mm-hmm. which is neat. But yeah, everybody has different goals. But yeah, was, I was definitely really nervous when I moved there. I think I took a month to visit and try it out. Like I think I knew I was going to move, but I just wanted to really make sure it was a good fit and I was going to be happy. And so I went out for a month and then I went back home and packed all my stuff out and drove out there. And, and I've been out there for over five years now, which is crazy. What can uh, someone expect in the first month, like the average practitioner? Yeah, I think it's going to be hard. I think you should have that expectation that the training is going to be hard. It's going to be tiring. You're going to be pushed. I think I did my first, just maybe not even the first month, but my first year season training there. I did a lot of crying and a lot of just like being frustrated with myself and and pushing myself. I was trying a lot. I don't think you have to, but I kind of felt like, especially my first month, like I should do as many classes as possible. And (laughs) they're tough training. So I was exhausted but it was, it was great. And I was really excited. That was kind of the dream that I had in my mind. It's like, what if I could just train all the time, you know, and then I was doing it. And then you realize like, oh, this is what it feels like to train all the time. It's actually kind of awful some days, but it's also Mm -hmm. great. But I think when, especially if somebody is planning to, to move there and like make jujitsu their life, I think it's, it's good to have like manage your expectations. You know, it's going to take, take a lot of work. Like there's no quick magic pill. It's not like you go to Aches for a month and all of a sudden your life, you're just going to be making money doing jujitsu, right? So you're going to have to, like, I was working jobs on the weekends and I was, I was doing things to make ends meet and sharing a room. And it was a grind for a while before I got to the point where jujitsu was my main income. So I think just be ready to work hard, you know, keep your head down, be nice to people. It's a very, people are very nice there. It's a very friendly community. They're very welcoming. A lot of people who are there came from somewhere else. So they know what it's like to be new in a new gym in a new city. That's something I've noticed about Atos compared to maybe some other gyms is that they are just Mm. very, very welcoming. That's what I was going to ask you. What's unique about Atos? 
Yeah, I think when you see teams, they kind of start at the at the top, the lead from the front. So you see Andre and Angelica. They Andre's always when he's not in a camp, you know, he's making an effort to say hi to people, um, remember their names. You know, it's hard to remember everybody's names, but he really tries and tries to just, you know, he's always happy to take pictures of people or talk to them. And they just work really, really hard. They grind really hard. Like I think a lot of gyms do, but they, um, I would say, if you think about autos, like it's a place you're going to go, you're going to go work for sure. Yeah. You were talking about teaching and seminars. You've been doing quite a bit of that and you've been teaching since what, purple or? Yeah, I think I did my first seminar when I was a purple belt. It was like really small. It was a women's only. And then when I was a brown belt, I really started teaching um, I made a road trip out to California. So I drove from Indiana, I had a little route that went like through Nebraska over to Colorado. And I stopped in Denver. I taught a seminar at Robert Wonderlick's gym. He used to be the head ref for Fight to Win. At mm-hmm. that time, and Fight to Win was like kind of a really big, it's still a, a big deal, but like it was really big mm-hmm. at that time. It really started coming up. And uh, so I did a Fight to Win match in Denver. I had a seminar and then I went and did another seminar in Wyoming. And then I drove down through Utah, through Las Vegas, and then mm-hmm. to California. So that was like the beginning of that. It was like really framed as, hey, you're helping me on my move out to California. And people were very, very supportive and responded really well to that. And then first I was just teaching maybe, a, you know, I was a brown belt, was teaching a seminar here and there. And then um, it grew and every year it's it's kind of grown a little bit more and I make new friends and find new gyms. I really love teaching opportunity to travel and meet new people. And especially as I started to do some longer term visits where I teach maybe for a couple of weeks for a month at a gym. I think that's been really rewarding for me because you teach a seminar and it's, it's fun. You get to teach your favorite moves, but then when you get to invest in people for a couple of weeks, I just love being able to see them hitting the moves that they're learning and asking questions and growing. And I just like investing a little bit more. I'm so glad you brought up the residency. I think you're the second person, Charles Harriet was another one to tell me about how he's been active in this type of residency type of thing. <laughs> I haven't, I didn't even know about this type of thing for a long time. And how lucky for these academies to be able to call in someone like yourself, a multiple time competitor and a medalist, and with so much experience to come in and do something like that. Sometimes people do it, they'll, they'll call it like a substitute teacher type of situation mm-hmm. where they hire someone. That's pretty wonderful. Can you talk about like the evolution of your teaching? How have you like sharpened that sword? And what was it like in the beginning versus where you're at now. I'm sure you're very comfortable teaching at this point or not. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, I'm always learning. You know, I'm always trying to improve. It's something that's important to me. I want to be a good teacher. I want to be a good coach. I think they're different, but obviously I've put a lot of effort into my own training and being a competitor, but eventually I want to, teaching to be more of a focus and it's already becoming a little bit more of a focus. I think for me, something that is very, very fulfilling. I think I, st- I actually started teaching when I was a blue belt. I had a women's class that I taught. And I was really, really blessed to be able to do that. And I learned a lot through that. And um, it really changes the way you think about jujitsu. I think so you're not just doing the moves, but you're really like having to understand them to explain to different body types and different learning styles. And some people will pick it up really fast, but then you'll have somebody else who struggles and you have to figure out how do I help them understand this move? And then it helps you understand the move. So I think a year into being at Atos, they asked me to help with their women's program. So I was working with Angelica a lot and, and teaching those classes. And that was really neat for me that it was almost like an apprenticeship to be able to watch her teach and help her teach. And then some days I would teach or like cover if she was gone. And so I really got to learn through that. And now I, I help a lot with the kids classes and get to 
I'm actually, an, I have an elementary education background, so I mm-hmm. love working with kids anyways, but um, so I get to help them learn jujitsu and, and they're so much fun. And then teaching seminars, that's a whole different skill because you're like really just putting together this kind of special day of moves that all fit together. Maybe you're like working on the legs or the back or whatever you're focusing on. Um, I always try to have kind of a central concept that everything fits together with. Maybe there are all these different moves, but they make sense together in some way. And then going and teaching classes, that's really different because then you're maybe more focusing on some basics or focusing on, hey, let's build every day this week. We're going to kind of work on the same idea, but we're going to try to, you know, maybe it's X card. We're all going to get better at X card by the end of the next couple of weeks. I went to a gym in Portland. I taught for two weeks and the goal the instructor had for me was just, I want my students to be able to invert because that instructor, that wasn't their strength. And it's obviously mm-hmm. something I love to do. So for two weeks, everything I did was kind of based around building movements and mechanics to be able to invert, to be able to do moves involved with inverting. And that was really fun. So I'm, I think everything that I, I get to do, I get to kind of expand my teaching a little bit more and, and think about it in new ways. And I love it. That's fascinating that you bring up teaching versus coaching mm-hmm. and, uh, and seminars too. How, how could someone get the, the most out of a seminar? Yeah, uh, take notes. For sure, if you're able to film, filming, it's great. I, I usually let people film. Even if you don't look at your notes later, if you just take notes, that'll help you remember it and then mm-hmm. drill them as soon as possible. So for me, I've had so many seminars and classes where I just that I don't remember mm-hmm. because if you don't like work on it immediately, you're going to forget. So I tell people like whenever I teach, because I have all levels, so I try to give something for every level. So I don't want to teach down to just the white belts. I want something for everybody, but I'll tell them, I'll be like, if, if it gets to the point where you're feeling oversaturated, just keep working on what we were doing before. Like if you want more reps in the last move, just do that. And I also tell them at the end of the seminar, pick one thing. Like if you just get one thing, one detail, even one concept that you're taking away from the seminar that you can remember, that you can work, that you can go drill with a friend, that's valuable for you. So you don't have to remember everything, but try to get something like valuable, like a little nugget. Like even if it's a grip that you just hadn't thought about before, you're like, I'm going to use that grip. That grip works for me. Like, that's great. Yeah, that's my advice. So teaching versus coaching, how would you define those? Have you done coaching or... Yeah. So I coach, I would say I coach the kids, I coach the women. And sometimes I coach teammates, like we'll coach each other at tournaments, especially if we don't have professor there. But yeah, they're, they're definitely different. I think like it's one thing to, I guess, to teach a seminar, you can be very good at explaining moves, but then coaching involves a lot more than just getting somebody to do a move, like to replicate a move. It's helping them with their mindset, helping them like when a kid is crying in class and struggling and being frustrated, like helping them learn how to even have inner positive self-talk that they can like use to get themselves through a tough training. It's like giving them, like helping them believe in themselves. <laughs> I think that's mm-hmm. part of coaching sure. and, sure. and it's tough strategy, helping them with, you know, even things, it doesn't even have to be about jujitsu, like helping them like, Hey, what are you going to do this week to get ready for competing? There's just like advice. There's a lot that goes into it. And I think it's, mm-hmm. yeah, not, a, not every teacher is a good coach, but I have been blessed to have some, some great coaches in my life. And I want to be that also. So let's talk about that. What what makes a great teacher? A great teacher, I think being able to explain things in a very clear way. So maybe you can do the move really well, but being able to explain like, these are the steps that are really important. I think sometimes people will even over explain and talk to the point where you can't remember what was important because they've said so many things. So you can even be like three, four, maybe five like, these are all the key points that I need to hit in this move, right? I think that's important, like being able to almost simplify it for people, give them like a concept that really helps tell them this is why this works. 
Like that helps me a lot. If you tell me to do something, but then you explain, this is why this is super important, then I'll remember it better. I think that's a good teacher is. So conversely, I like to ask, what makes a great BJJ student? I think being really um, observant, like when you're watching the move, really pay attention and asking questions is important, but like making sure, like asking questions is great. And I encourage people to do that, but make sure your questions are like helpful questions. I guess it's like sometimes people always ask the what if questions, like, well, what if they do this? What if they like stop this here? And then it's always like, okay, but this is the move that we're doing. Mm. If you don't understand this move, if you can't do this move, then you're not ready for the what if yet. So let's like, let's focus on what we're doing right now. And if you have a question about this technique, ask about this technique, like maybe it's a pass. Like if you have questions about, you know, where are you putting your hand there? Like, why are you choosing to do this or, or things like that? Great. But if you're, you're asking like, oh, but what if I do this? And then they do this. It's like, well, we could do that all day. And I think sometimes, especially with the kids, you'll see this, like, they just want to ask a question. They just want to say something mm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they want to be told a question because, <laughs> but sometimes it's just like, that's not helpful right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I think knowing when to ask questions and when to just work too. And I, I tell people too, I'm like, if you're doing a new technique that you just learned, you shouldn't ask for help right away. And I think for a coach too, you shouldn't help somebody their first rep because, and this is coming from a, a teaching background, the ability to self-correct is really important. So mm-hmm. if you haven't even tried it yet, you haven't had the chance to mess up or to to fail or to to feel it. So I think you do it the first time or the second time, and maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it is, like maybe you do really well, but at least you've tried it. And now you can have somebody help you after you've like had a little bit of experience with the move. And you've been able to to at least try to remember every step you could, even if you forgot something, like you've solidified something good in your memory. And then for me, at least when I do move and then I find something, I'm like struggling with something and then somebody helps me, I remember it so much better. Whereas if you just come and walk me through it step by step, I might not remember because I just was a little robot and did what you told me to, <laughs> you know? So I think being like willing, I see a lot of kids, again, they'll ask for help before they've even tried it. And like, I always tell them, try it first. Mm. Even if you get it, I want you to try it first and then I'll help you. But like, believe in yourself. Like maybe you can do it or maybe you can, maybe it's not perfect, but maybe you can do it pretty well. Something we would do when I was an elementary school teacher, we would give kids their, like maybe something they wrote. Like, I want you to check your work and I want you to try to correct it first. And then, and a lot of times, like they learn way more from that than if I just went through and marked everything. It makes Mm -hmm. you think, use your brain. I'm wondering if that does it kill you to see like an adult where you're like, if I just say one thing, they're going to get this knee cut pass, but I just got to let them, you know. <laughs> I think it it's hard them. to watch somebody struggle and not help them. But it's like, even you look at a little kid and they're trying to learn to walk. You have to let them struggle a little bit. You have to struggle to grow. You can't like have everything spoon fed to you. So I think sometimes it's hard. I'm watching somebody struggle, but sometimes if you let them struggle a little bit, they'll figure it out themselves. Right. <laughs> like I'm so frustrated. And and this is me. Like I'm, <laughs> I don't like getting helps too much. Like I do like getting helped for sure. I like getting feedback, but um, if I'm trying to move for the first time, I like to do it slow. And I like to think about every step and I like to really try to remember, you know, and then sometimes I'll mess it up, but I'll realize immediately what I did and I'll be able mm-hmm. to fix it. But if somebody mm-hmm. jumps in before I've had the chance to do that, it's just frustrating. It's like, uh, just, just give me a second. Give me a chance. <laughs> <laughs> the kid, I understand. The adult, I would just be all, oh God, I just got to tell you the answer or something like that. You know, I don't know. Uh-huh. But you're totally right. So speaking of uh, improving the game and, and little things that you learn, 
Has there ever been something like an observation that you've made either from Andre or like an instructional or a seminar or something that has, I'm sure there has been, but give us an example of if you can remember something that was sort of a game changer for you. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about the head. They can hug your head mm. to death for sure. Also, Louisa Montero, she's like amazing multiple time black belt world champion. She um she helped me actually with my pantagard and my my knee bar attacks because mm. she would also about the head. She would just smash me a lot when I would go and not hide my head. And she would be like, Nikki, you need to hide more of your head. And I can hear that in my head. And like when I do mess up and somebody hugs my head, I'm like, uh, and hide my head, you know, but that mm. really stuck me. Another one also from my old teammate, Coach Joe Bays. Um, he's in Kentucky. He talking about footlocks. He would always talk about how you have like a, a pickle jar and how do you open mm. a pickle jar? Like you don't open it over here. You don't open it up here. You know, you open it right here in the middle of so your center. For context real quick for the listener, Nikki's holding her arms <laughs> extended far away from her body up, down and to the sides. Yes. The place with the most leverage, right. To open it, this jar that's maybe has a tight lid is, is right in the middle with your elbows in like where you can use your whole body. Right. It's right. Oh, wow. Great point. And your yeah. birthday, he was like, don't put your feet in somebody else's pickle jar. Mm. Right. And that was amazing. So thinking about attacking submissions, but also defending, like you don't, that's where, that's that spot where they're strongest. And that's if you're attacking something, you want it there. Mm. And if you don't want to just stick your finger, you're going to get a steamal act. I've had that happen. I going to ask because that's fascinating, especially with your panda and all your inversion stuff. You're very good at not getting your, your feet attacked. And I would have thought that by the physics, the look of it, that I would be able to just grab your feet and just toe hold you like crazy <laughs> or something like that. I don't understand how you're defending so well. I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I play the style I do is because I do have my legs up in the air, but I usually um, i am getting them behind the person. So I usually offer, I like, I like a K guard also where your foot mm -hmm. is kind of hidden hip but i also like to have both legs through and behind so that they can't really grab them i like to find positions to attack where my feet and my legs are pretty safe so i don't play as much of the 50 50 i'm working on that but i feel like unless you can get yourself into the right position you do risk a counter attack so i try to find positions where i'm pretty safe or like i move my feet around a lot too i'm always ready inverting too like if you have your if somebody starts attacking your foot a lot of times inverting and rolling will turn you out of that attack mm -hmm. so that's helpful also so knowing i think i've had my feet attacked a lot so that helps and just knowing wherever i'm playing like there's danger there knowing that it's there allows me to be ready to defend so you told us to some extent the evolution of your game i'm curious and you've given you've given us a hint right there in that answer but where do you want your game to go and what do you wish that you were better at yeah man so many things everything <laughs> <laughs> join the club did <laughs> you start crying no um <laughs> I've been working, I mean, I, I love leg attacks, but I'm working more, I think a lot of times because especially I was doing a lot of IBJJF, my leg attack game was geared more towards knee bars and toe holds. And now um, I'm working my heel hooks more, mm. trying to get tighter, especially as, as the game has evolved and everybody's playing with heel hooks now, everybody's getting really good at defending. So I think before it was way easier to finish these submissions and now everybody has a good defense. So now it's like, okay, how do I finish somebody that's good at defending this? Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. kind of next up and having training partners who are very good at those games to play with has been really helpful. Um, wrestling, 
you know, that's something we work on a lot at Autos. And obviously I pull guard a lot, but I have done tournaments like ADCC trials where you have to do a little more wrestling. And so working on at least defensive wrestling, I had a match at the last trials where we ended up having to go to overtime. You can't pull guard, right? Because there's a penalty. So mm-hmm. um, I had to just be kind of confident on my feet. And, um, you know, we ended up in a scramble where she attacked my back and then there was nothing. I ended up on bottom, but there was nothing. So like just even being able to deal with those kinds of scenarios, even if I'm not great at wrestling, um, but I'm definitely working on that. I want to have have better takedowns and figuring out what style of wrestling is better for me. Mm. Working my pass and working on everything right now, working on my head arm chokes and working on yeah, dead orchard. That's kind of a new thing for me. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. just, just trying to figure out too, like I am flexible. So what are ways that I can use that? There are probably things I can do that a lot of people can't. So mm-hmm. finding that out, finding, um, you know, where is this tool strong? Where is it weak? Is this putting mm-hmm. me in danger here? Is this so, and just trying to be a better student too, in general, it's, I, I would say that's my weakest area in jujitsu. I really like to train. I really like to drill. Um, that's where I'm good, but I have trouble sitting and watching video and like just making myself study. So mm. I think like I was in college and school for so long and I had to do all the studying. And then when I was out, I'm like done. Mm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, it's important. And you see the people who are the minds who are really good at jujitsu. They just study all the time. So mm-hmm. that's something that I'm making more of a priority scheduling in my day to just spend time watching video and um, take information that I can help. Cause you can only train so much before your body breaks down that you can study all the time. Your Have thoughts it. on ADCC. That was amazing. I was think, it? man, the, the best one yet, probably like, it's just, mm. it's so cool how they're really making it a big show. They're making it more spectator friendly. They're really trying to grow the sport. I think ADCC is the big tool they're using to do that. They're trying to make it more profitable for the athletes. Mm-hmm. I think getting names out, giving them, you know, a chance to get paid. And I think the matches were just super exciting. I think they really were encouraging athletes to push the pace. Mm-hmm. And that just makes for less stalling, more exciting matches. And I think I think a lot you see a lot of new athletes coming out too. They're just really motivated to make their mark. The women's divisions were just super exciting. I think um mm-hmm. and you have the polos. They're always just some of my favorites to watch. Yeah. You know, yeah, just so many good matches, so many submissions, so many really unique situations that happen. And I was learning a lot. Any shockers or surprises for you? Oh man! Well, dude. Um, I mean, I don't know if it was a, it was a JT broke my heart. That that was a dude. That was, and that was so sad. And but. so that was a tough one because obviously he's he's amazing and he's I haven't really trained with him personally, but he's Atos and you know it's mm-hmm. a teammate. And um, so obviously you want and he's just such a nice person. You want him to to win. But then PJ also is is somebody I know. He lifts weights at the same gym I do, and and I see how hard he works. And he's right. kind of been an underdog for a long time. So I always yep. there's a part of you that wants to root for that underdog and see them sure. win. Amy Campo defeating Gabby mm-hmm. Garcia. That was I was just super eager because she's also somebody who works super hard and just very wild. technical as well as being just you know strong and like aggressive and um. It was neat to see because Gabby's just been so dominant for so long. And I've always felt like she was just so much bigger than everybody else. And so to see that athletes coming up who now are just so good Mm -hmm. and they're like strategizing, obviously, you know, there's a lot of strategy and what happened there. Um, But it's really neat to just see see that happening and see people like Brianna St. Marie, who she's just like kind of come on the scene. I feel in the past year, I've competed against her before and she's one of the nicest people I've ever met. And um, just seeing her do so well and man, yeah, just so many cool moments, I think. (laughs) 
especially in the women's division, I like all these people. I think they're all great. So yeah. you're sad. You don't want people to lose. But um, yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's just especially for women's jujitsu to see not only like all these women representing on the stage at ADCC, but to see them just going for it and having these super technical, amazing, exciting matches is, I think, great. So Nikki, can you tell me a time that you wanted to quit? Yeah, there've been a lot for sure. I think anytime if you do this long enough and you're like pushing yourself, you're going to have times of burnout, times when you don't love it, times when you're kind of forcing yourself to do it. I think for me coming back from COVID, the lockdown was really tough because so before COVID, I'd been doing a ton. I've been doing everything. I was competing almost every weekend. I was doing really well. I was like, had a lot of momentum and I was enjoying it. I was training really hard. But then when COVID hit and everything happened, everything kind of shut down. I wasn't really upset about it because I kind of felt like, well, I've, I've done everything I can do and I probably do for a break. So this is great. <laughs> like, right. and it was a time of, of zero pressure. And for a little while, me and my buddy would just push the couches out of the way in the living room and he would come over and train with me and we would drill and like put matches on the TV and, you know, roll in my living room. Um, and then I got a little group that we would just go to somebody's garage and we had like maybe six of us and we would, we would train and then we would make food or order food and we were watching the original UFCs. And it was just this really great time of getting to, I love, I love learning and I love playing with jujitsu. And when you're really focused on competing and just grinding, sometimes that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. You have to just really be focusing on winning and, and doing what you have to do to win. And so just having a time when there's none of that pressure and we could just explore and have fun, like try new things and I, working on barambolos and like all this fancy stuff. And um, it was just really, really wonderful. And so I think coming back from that was really hard because I felt like we came back and the attitude in the gym and the attitude that Andre had was like, I want you guys to be ready for anything. Like we got to go, we got to work hard which is great. And there were a lot of opportunities to compete coming right back, but I just wasn't ready. I was really just enjoying that time of like zero pressure. So I think I wasn't ready for that pressure again. Mm. And I tried, I think I tried to push myself really hard, but mentally and like my heart just wasn't in it. Mm -hmm. And so I had some competitions that I did, even though I didn't really want to, and I just didn't have a great performance. And I, in it, that made me feel even more like I didn't want to compete. So I think I did take some time off from competing for a while and and tried to really focus more on training. But yeah, I just had a, a period of time where it was really hard and I didn't really, when we were doing, uh, <laughs> we were doing 6am training for a while coming back because like people were looking in at the gyms and like trying to get you in trouble if you're training. Right. For yeah. well and Especially just, here in California. Yeah. Yeah. So we were doing comp class at 6am. And, and for a little while, it was kind of like, okay, we're just, we're just doing what we have to do. We're grinding, you know, but then it was just man, it's hard to get up super early and be like cold. And I don't know, I just, I just wasn't enjoying it. I think my heart wasn't in it. My mind wasn't in it. I was I didn't want to just be killing myself every day because I knew what it was like to just really enjoy jujitsu and love jujitsu every day and just do it for fun. Right. Cause I do love it. And so to know that that was possible and then to be like, just like hating it <laughs> was really hard. I think, I guess my advice is if you, if you have a time like that, you can take a break. Now you can take time off. And I started really changing my training schedule after that too. I started realizing, okay, maybe um, because I'm getting older too, I'm not old, but I have lower back pain that flares up if I'm killing myself every day. And I just feel like my body can't handle everything it used to. So I'm trying to think about, okay, how can I be efficient? Like maybe I'm not doing comp class every day. Maybe I'm doing comp class a couple of days and then other days I'm really focused on drilling and learning and studying and um, feeling like, okay, is there a way that I can kind of have a both? Can I still 
still be working hard, but also make sure to make time to really love this. And because I want to do it forever. I want to not quit, you know? (laughs) And I think having balance too, I think the hard thing about jujitsu is that we don't really have a season like a lot of sports do. So you could just compete all the time. You have to to create a season for yourself. And I think what I've kind of done is I have seasons where I'm really focused on training hard and competing. And then I have other seasons where I'm letting myself travel and teach and like train, you know, maybe I'll visit my friend's gym and train with them and I'll just focus more on having fun and playing with new things. And I think that's really important. And something I really realized through that whole time that I really need to have that downtime in my life where I'm able to just enjoy it. I think you used an operative word when you were explaining some of this is finding the love in it again, because it sounds like during the lockdowns or when you were doing those garage kind of sessions with your friends that you kind of fell in love, like you were having fun again. Yeah, it was just play. It was just, this is great. Mm. We don't have to do anything. So we just get to go hang out and do jujitsu, like a clubhouse. And it was neat. It felt like when I first started training and I was just excited and I wanted mm-hmm. to train one of the things I want to ask you is for advice to those practitioners. It could be hobbyists you know, that just have not won gold yet. Sometimes I get well, messages from listeners who are like, perhaps it's Joe Plummer or whatever, right? And I went to my local tournament and I compete regularly at these little local tournaments, but I'm just not meddling or I'm not getting gold. You know what I mean? What your advice to them? And, and they're really disheartened by this thing. You know, it, it may not sound like it's important to a professional competitor, but to them, it's really important. I think you don't have to be a full-time athlete to compete or to do well. I know a lot of people who they have full-time jobs and they still compete and they they do well. I think there's even, I can't remember his name. There's a guy who is at ADCC. He competed and he's a lawyer. And I have a friend. Her name is Rachel Casillas and she is a lawyer and she's a mother of two and she lives in Tennessee. And she um, was like a multiple time, like master black belt world champion. You know, she's like just done very well in competition over the years. And I, so I interviewed her about it one time and she was saying, you know, kind of what I was talking about of being efficient with her training. But like, she's like, some days I just have an hour. I have an hour to train and I go in and I just, I'm very present in the hour and I'm really like efficient with what I do in that hour. I know what I want to do. I know what I want to work on. Like there's no time where you're like sitting on the wall or you're like messing around. Like she really values that time because that's all she has. So she goes in and she like makes sure she has a partner to work with her, whatever she wants to do. And then I think before I moved to California, I was working jobs and was a teacher. And so I remember the first time I did Nogi Pans, I would like get up at 5am to go drill with the buddy before work. And then I would train after work, but I was just finding time to like put in some extra work. And when I was training, I was trying to like really get the most out of that time because that's what I had to do. And I think um, I see people that really focus on that and do that. They do really well. And I don't even think you don't have to get up at 5am. You don't have to do all this extra stuff, but I would say be present in the time that you are training, have a plan, have a focus, like, no, this is what I need to work on. Like, mm-hmm. this is something I'm going to work on today. This is what happened last tournament. These are the things that I'm going to try to improve for the next tournament, right? You can still do really well. I think sometimes the people that that only have a little bit of time, they value their training more. And they maybe even like, I can take it for granted sometimes because I can just train whenever I want now. So it's easy right. to get a little bit with it. But I think when this is all I have, like maybe I, I can't even do it every day. If this is the day that I have to train. And you really make the most out of it. Can you tell us a part of your game that people maybe just don't attribute with you? Because everyone, yeah. when they think of you, they think inversion, right? Sure. Yeah, that's fair. And that is something I, I do a lot. I have been working my passing a lot. I think I've been finding there's some things, my flexibility helps my guard a lot, but it can help my passing too. So there are certain things I can do. Like, hmm. you know, like if somebody puts me in deep half, I can do the splits. I can do Good maybe point. just move my body in different ways that can help my passing. Even things like I use my feet a lot. 
And so I can do things like step on people's legs, step on their wrists, like, and I can get my leg there from really awkward positions because of my flexibility. So sometimes I can just do really sneaky things on top. Yeah. And somebody, one of the guys who was fighting on the card last weekend, he commented, he's like, you're just always using your feet. <laughs> like, mm, like I use my mm. feet like and something bottom and top that I, that I do a lot. Yeah. I have like little monkey feet. So where do you see uh, jujitsu going future jujitsu? I think it's growing. And um, so my hope, what I see happening is that it's, it's growing, it's becoming more popular. Things like ADCC um, and, and the no-gi is getting much bigger. I think so. Gi jujitsu used to be the thing and no-gi was kind of like those other guys over there, like maybe 10th planet, you know, and now no-gi is, like you said, like professional athletes, like this is and with MMA too, I think that's made Nogi really attractive. And you see a lot of celebrities getting involved. So I think Jiu-Jitsu, Gi and Nogi will grow, but I think you're seeing Nogi Jiu-Jitsu getting way bigger. And I think my hope is that that'll make opportunities for the athletes to make more money, to make more of a living doing it, um, more opportunities for people to open gyms. And, and as that happens, like more people will get involved and I hope it gets really big. That would be amazing. Um, it became more of a you know, it is a professional sport, but it's not like something like basketball or football or, you know, even MMA. So if it could get to that level, that would be amazing. So what's your future looking like? What do you got coming up? Nogi Worlds is coming up in December. I have some seminars coming up and be on the East Coast a little bit next month, traveling and training and teaching and getting ready for Nogi Worlds. And then yeah, I think about the future a lot. And I guess my the simplest answer is I'm not sure. People ask mm. a lot, are you gonna open a gym? It's something I think about. And I think there was a point where I didn't believe that was talk about being realistic. Again, I didn't believe me opening a gym as a woman was realistic. Like maybe I would need to have a guy to do it with or like just would people want to come. And now just as much as I've taught and seeing even, I think back when I started, it wasn't very common. Like you didn't have female in gyms and you didn't have females really teaching seminars. And now it's that's just grown so much. That's something mm-hmm. that uh, I'm really grateful for it at such a neat time when women's jiu-jitsu especially was was growing. And so seeing, um, I go teach and yeah, like tons of guys come to learn from me and they don't, they listen and they respect me and they they think they're, they get stuff out of it. So even if they're bigger or stronger, that's been a big mindset shift. Like I believe if, if I did decide to open a gym that I could, I could make it successful. I don't know if that's what I want. So that's a lot what I think about, like what's going to make me happy. What's going to make me fulfilled as a athlete and a teacher, but as an artist and as somebody who just, um, you know, what's important to me, I think about that, but I do love teaching. And so I think near future, I want to teach more. I want to do more residencies, you know, build more relationships in that way. And I could see myself doing that for a while, for sure, just traveling and, and training with people and teaching them. And then we'll see... I don't know. I think the theme of my journey so far, if you asked me five years ago where I would be, I would not have dreamed I would be here. So Mm. I think I keep putting one foot in front of the other and good things have been happening. And if you work hard, like people want to help you and people want to succeed. So I think um, that's kind of been my my mission is just keep putting one foot in front of the other, keep Mm -hmm. working hard, like keep working towards things that make me feel happy, make me feel fulfilled. And um, who knows, like maybe, maybe five years from now, I'll be doing something that I couldn't think of right now or that I couldn't dream of. So that's exciting to think about. I believe good things are going to come. I'm enjoying the right now. And I think that's really important too. Well, Nikki, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're up to? 
Yeah, um, I'm I'm really active on Instagram, so I, you can follow me, Nikki Cuddle Jitsu. I post a lot of techniques, I post a lot of fun flows, and um, trying to just come up with new fun ideas to share there. I'm an artist. If you're interested at all in what I do with painting, I have an Instagram for that also, Nikki Sullivan Art. And that's another like goal of mine for the future, for sure. I want to make that more of a business, maybe even find a way to combine the two. I don't know how, but um, and then Facebook too. I'm on Facebook, Nikki Sullivan BJJ. Everyone, thanks for listening again another week. I am your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Do the whole thing. Give us the five stars on Spotify, Apple Music, and the whole deal. And we appreciate you guys all so very much. Nikki, I can't thank you enough for your time. It was really a real honor and a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. It was an honor for me, too. I really enjoyed the interview. Thank you.